Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good in a raw bone podcast. Before we get started, I want to thank Ryan Ashby and Ted Henschel for their contributions to Stick to Wrestling. Thank you, guys. If you would like to contribute, no amount is too little and certainly no amount is too much. Just hit up prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com at paypal.com. And let me see, we have episode 200 coming up in April. You want to be part of our Facebook group for that because it's going to be nothing but taking questions from our Facebook group. So if you haven't joined, please do so. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I am just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy with the stick to wrestling avatar. And this is the beginning of WrestleMania month where my guest and I are going to review one of the most important WrestleManias ever, WrestleMania 8 which took place almost 30 years ago. I want to introduce a new guest to Stick to Wrestling. He's a lifelong wrestling fan, and he's a stand-up comic in New York City. Kyle Lewis. Kyle, thank you for coming on. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thanks for having me. Kyle, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, You grew up in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, still live in Brooklyn. Started doing stand-up comedy maybe seven years ago, about. But throughout that, just kind of been a wrestling fan my entire life. Uh, did uh, worked in radio for a little bit. Did some busted open. I was there for a few years as well. But I've been a little bit everywhere. <laughs> That's cool, honestly. And I mean, you've had a, a good career doing stand up so far. I mean, you've done some some pretty major venues. I mean, not Madison Square Garden, but you've done Carolines. No, no Madison Square Garden yet. Yeah, I've been doing, uh, I've done some Caroline's shows. I've done a New York Comedy Club, been featured with uh, Mark Ellis and the Sh- Schmodown crew, as they call it. Uh, some shows on like San Diego Comic Con weekend in New Orleans. I have my own show, Character Select Comedy, which is uh, coming back sometime in the spring. But we've been kind of on the down low. Once Omicron hit, it was kind of like, okay, we got to chill for a little bit. Because, like, every comic was getting Omicron. Like, every story I was going through on Instagram, it was like, hey, I got it. I was like, oh, God, okay. So let's just pump the brakes a little. But I'm happy to be going back to doing it now. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad both of us are relatively healthy and have not not had to deal with any of that. Yeah, it's it's hard. You got to try and stay safe out there. You got to mask up, look like you're in Mortal Kombat or something the entire time. But, (laughs) hey. You still, you're healthy. You're safe. Yeah, that, that's the important part. Soon marks the 30th anniversary of WrestleMania 8. And Kyle, you actually kind of asked to be on this show because this was kind of the beginning of you being a wrestling fan. Yes, it was literally the first show that I saw. And funny enough, saw in reverse. <laughs> like I, we, My family and I were, were getting things set up. I was a kid. Getting things set up, and for my brother, who was a fan first, so my brother started watching, I think, early 92. His first event was Saturday night's main event where Roddy Piper had the shockproof shirt on and, like, with the feeding with the Mountie, or maybe even before that because he really liked Bret Hart. So he wanted to see Bret Hart, Roddy Piper. I was in my own world. But the only wrestlers I knew for some reason 
were Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. And I don't know how I knew these two, because I don't remember seeing wrestling before this, but I just knew those names. And my brother called me in the room, and he was like, they're beating up Hulk Hogan. And I don't know who these guys are, Sid Justice, Papa Shango. And then Bobby Heenan's like, he doesn't have a friend left. And then the Warrior comes out. And I'm just like, the two people that I know are like working together. And it was like the coolest thing. And I never stopped after that. I'm, I'm good to hear. How old were you? I was like five, maybe. Oh, five, man. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> so you see this man running out in underwear and bright colors, saving another <laughs> man in bright colors. Like, you're hooked. It just grabs you. I, I tell you, what, I am way older than you. I started re- watching in 1976. And, oh, wow. And the guys, yeah. And the guys I had heard about before I had started watching, there were three of them, Bruno Sammartino, Chief Day Strongbow and George the Animal Steel. And one of these things is not like the other. I mean, <laughs> but those are the guys I heard heard about through my friends. And uh, Bruno was, uh, that was always a name that was thrown around. I, I unfortunately, I mean, I wasn't even old enough to, to see Bruno in his prime. But when you would watch uh, with like grandparents or something, they'd be like, I remember Bruno San Martino. I remember, uh, well, George the Animal Steel was like in and out still. Yeah. Uh, they'd be Chief J Strong, bro, and you would see him like Tatanka every now and then. But like that was like those were names that were always thrown around by like my teachers and by. And sorry if I'm aging you worse, <laughs> but but those are names that like you grew to respect, especially Bruno. You know, especially living oh, yeah. in New York, like everybody had respect for Bruno. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Bruno was he was so big in New York, so big in Boston and so big in Pittsburgh and and really big in, in places like Baltimore and Philly, too. Mm-hmm. No, he was he was legendary. All right. So WrestleMania eight. Let me see. We've got not a full house, but in, an impressive looking crowd. It looks good on TV. And there were over 62,000 people there. Uh, I'll tell you at the end why I think this was a historic WrestleMania. But we kick off with. Tito Santana versus Shawn Michaels. One thing about Tito Santana, you might not know, Kyle. He was the last WWF guy who did not have a gimmick. He was the last guy who didn't bring a snake to the ring or he you know, he didn't have a wild gimmick. He was just Tito Santana. And now the, the final, we've crossed the final line. He is now the Matador. Everyone has a gimmick. Yes, the yeah, El Matador was the, my first showing of Tito Santana. <laughs> and I liked El Matador. I thought it was cool. I, I thought it was fine. It was like, you know, okay, now Tito fits in with everyone else. And then that's important in life, I guess. Yeah. Tito, th- thus far at WrestleMania 80, he has been in every WrestleMania. He and Hulk Hogan are the only guys who could say that. That's pretty awesome. I did not know that fact. Yeah, I, I didn't know it until I started researching the show. but. What did you think of this match, Kyle? I thought I thought it was okay, but it was disappointing considering that A, we have two really talented guys in there, and B, Shawn Michaels was in the middle of getting his first big singles push, and I, I thought he would show more. Uh, yeah, this match, I, I remember liking it when I was younger. I watched it back a couple days ago. I still do. Uh, one of the confusing things about the match, well, another interesting thing about the match is He's Shawn Michaels, but he's not the heartbreak kid yet. They're just only calling him Shawn Michaels. Like, he's just getting into this gimmick. Uh, Sensational Sherry is as well. Like, you can actually see her, like, mouthing the theme song as they're walking down together, which I thought was cool. 
the ending is is very weird because you expect like maybe Sherry to trip him, but Tito Santana just falls. I know they try and play it as like he's holding the rope and the rope strength is what causes uh, Santana to fall, but it's still kind of a wonky ending, especially for somebody who uh, a coming out party for Shawn Michaels. But it didn't deter him at all. If anything, it just helped his year. You know, coming out party is a really good way to put it because Sean had been in the Rockers tag team uh, since 1986. And I think I've told the story on the show before. In 1990, Sean wanted out of that tag team. He thought he could do much more in the wrestling business. And he threatened to quit when his contract came up. And he was like, hey, you know, I'll go work for WCW. I'll go work for Memphis and I'll, as a single and I'll show the world what I can do. And McMahon finally broke down and, and let him be a single and really got behind it because he got Sherry Martell as his manager. The guys who had had Sherry as their manager previously were Randy Savage and Ted DiBiase. Those guys were a big deal. Yeah, it's a great company to be in. And they definitely uh, they saw something in Shawn Michaels. They were pushing the fact that he was going to get an intercontinental to the winner was going to get an intercontinental title shot in the future, which ended up being Shawn Michaels, and he got it down the line eventually. I know they, I remember some old superstars, they teased him and Brett, but that didn't happen until much, much later. But I think if you put Sherry Martel behind Shawn Michaels, you're in for a, they have some faith in you, and good thing they took a chance on him. Yeah, um, I mean, it re- it worked, I think, better than anyone could have expected. Um, you know, I'm not always right, but I remember when I heard that story, and just hearing stuff about Shawn Michaels who I have never met but I I saw him as a heel in Memphis in 1988 and I thought he was really good but I mean he wasn't just really good I mean the guy turned into an all-time legend yeah who who would have thought I mean I thought he was one of the guys I'll say this about Shawn Michaels especially that character he was one of the first heels that I liked it was him and Razor Ramon I didn't know that Razor Ramon I didn't know was a heel when I first saw the vignettes but Shawn Michaels was one of those like you know, when you're a kid and you're supposed to like all the good guys and you quietly like like one of the bad guys or like you're always picking that person in like a video game or that like you're obsessed with that action figure. That was Shawn Michaels for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I went through the same thing because when I first started wrestling, I liked just the baby faces. That was it. And then I started noticing the the heels were kind of cooler. If you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Yes. Ken Patera kind of broke that for me. I'm like, wow, this guy, this guy's really cool. But anyway, uh, next we have an interview with the Legion of Doom. They are returning to the World Wrestling Federation after a brief absence. They've been there since 1990. And this time, Paul Ellering is their manager. He was their manager in World Championship Wrestling for the longest time, 1983 through 1990. And he's back. And Kyle, I kind of didn't know where they were going with this interview. It took a long time, and it was basically like, hey, LOD's back. Yeah, this interview and this this WrestleMania, watching it back, has a lot of just random segments that you just would not see today, like just chock full of just interviews. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's just like, and filler. And I don't know if that was just like the VHS version or that's exactly how it came off on pay-per-view too. But this was, I mean, my first time watching it, I didn't know who these people were. I just knew they were the guys in, like, WrestleFest that could beat me up. But (laughs) it 
you know, the knowing what I know now, it's cool. It's a cool surprise having um, Paul Ellering back. Fans were really into it. So, I mean, I wish the rest of 92 worked out for them, but it was cool. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, in 92, they actually got serious about steroid testing. They finally had, WWF finally had their arm twisted off. Like, all right, we'll finally do this. And really, there there is no LOD without the huge physiques. Yeah, no, you don't want to see a, a small hawk and a small animal. There are small animals, but you don't want to see a small <laughs> animal in the ring. Yeah, and we'll talk more about this later, but you have guys hiding their physiques, and it's it's not a good look. I think the WWF was put in a, a bad situation by, by having to test, having to do it suddenly. But anyway, next up is The Undertaker against Jake Roberts. They had a great storyline coming in where Jake Roberts basically turned on The Undertaker and Paul Bearer and at the time, I was shocked. I'm like, wow, the Undertaker, who is still reasonably new in the WWF, he'd been there less than a year and a half, is all of a sudden a, a good guy. This guy who represents death is a good guy. Yeah, something about him that people were were gravitated to, attracted to. I mean, it's his whole career, right? It seems like almost any time they tried to turn the Undertaker heel, just it didn't last for long. Uh, I remember this is we're jumping way ahead when he became big evil like he was the coolest character because he was just evil and beat people up but back to back then i know um he tried to he saved miss elizabeth a couple times and then jake roberts turned on him and as they showed in the video package ddt is paul bearer and they have a match and i thought it was a pretty good match i think uh i mentioned coming out party for Shawn michaels but i'll I, i'll have to pre- credit uh my brother on this who used to work on Three Man Booth with me. It, he, this was also the coming out party for the, uh, the under WrestleManias-wise. For Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, and we'll get to it soon, Bret Hart. Because those would eventually be the three that carry the WWE, WWF, for the next five, seven years until the Attitude Era. So this was like their mania. Uh, you know what? I can see that. You're right. This was kind of a coming out party for all three guys because their their roles were being greatly expanded after this WrestleMania. I, I didn't like this match. I It, it felt like Jake kind of wasn't interested, to be honest. And I remember watching it at the time thinking, you know, wow, they they buried Jake Roberts. And then I find out that he's quit or has given his notice before the show. Oh, well, I did not know that was before the show. Huh. I knew yeah, he, I, I saw had, he left and then he went to WCW for a bit, but yeah, I had no idea he was on his way out. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is one of the three biggest matches on the card and they're putting it on second and Jake is basically getting buried. So I was very surprised by that. Mm-hmm. And the Undertaker's first, at least the first two WrestleManias, kind of him taking out the old guard, Jimmy Snuka and now Jake Roberts before getting regulated to like having to fight big guys for the next four years. Yeah, no, I mean, but it it makes perfect sense as far as, you know, they saw what they had in The Undertaker, and, and unfortunately, WCW did not see what they had in him running around just calling him Mean Mark. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mean Mark Callis. I, didn't, I don't think The Undertaker would have worked anywhere else. It was this weird brainchild of Vince McMahon and the WWF, and it ended up working, and now he's going into the Hall of Fame today, so... 
There you go. Not, not literally today, but in the next uh, couple weeks. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, like I said, I I was taken aback when when he turned, but you know what? The money is in the good guy. So I I I think they might have done it a little bit early, but that's when it was. Next up, we have Bret Hart versus Roddy Piper. What I thought was an excellent, excellent match, especially from a psychological point of view. Like Roddy really showed the world that he knows what he's doing inside that squirt circle. It is an almost perfect match. I, don't, I would even call it a perfect match. I don't see many flaws. And from the promos before with the talking about Helena Hart and talking about a younger bro Hart and making the sandwiches. Although sometimes I do get confused about, I was like, I don't think they're that close in age, but that aside from that promo to the match, the Piper trying to be like, not as aggressive. Cause that's his friend. That's his like cousin quote unquote. So becoming the Piper that people were to know, or like starting to lean more into that heel side to the ring bell, to the blood. And the infamous, what, what I call the Brett, the finisher, where Brohart, where, where someone puts their feet on the turnbuckles and flips back. That was the first time I saw something like that. And people still use that move today. They use it on WWE, AEW. They use that. that that's a spot that I've only seen there. So that match, just, I think, is also very influential and probably the best match. If not probably the best match on the show. I thought it was the best match on the show, too, by a, a small margin, but the best match. I mean, and if you didn't see it, Roddy Piper was doing interviews with Bret Hart before this event, and they were kind of kidding around together. But when you, you, you we've all been there, that guy who kids around a little too much and crosses that line and gets a little bit condescending and under your skin. And Roddy did a great job playing that role. And Bret did a great job playing his role and being like, you know, Roddy, that's enough. Absolutely. Uh, I, my, the, the one I saw the most was the WrestleMania 8 one, but I think they had maybe one or two on the network before then, or I've maybe seen a couple on YouTube, which is somewhat similar. But they did a great job with this story. And this was also like Piper was gone after a little bit after this, too, right? I believe so. He got caught up in the whole steroid thing as well. And mm-hmm. he had to, I know he, he had to testify about you know him using steroids. Oh, boy. He wouldn't even let me looking at him. He wouldn't see it, but I guess. Well, you know what? Roddy is he's one of those guys that the analogy I always use is a woman doesn't have to have breasts the size of Rhode Island. To me, that means that she's had a breast job and the guy doesn't have to look like Ultimate Warrior. You know, he's not going to always look like Ultimate Warrior if he's using steroids. Roddy was using steroids, you know, the whole time since like 1984, I want to say. Oh, wow. That's. I'm learning so much. <laughs> no, hey, I, I, I'm I'm getting the same thing from you, man, because we have different perspectives. You know, you are way younger, and that's a good thing. But anyway, it's a good thing in more yeah. ways than one. Good, <laughs> yeah, good good thing I did not learn about the uh, the steroid scandal at five years old. I feel a lot yeah, to hand. Exactly, and they were right in the middle of the big scandals. I think the Phil Donahue show had aired maybe two or three weeks before this event. So they were right in the middle of a big, a great big storm. That is unfortunate for them. Yeah. Lex Luger surprises the world by appearing at WrestleMania. He was still under contract to world championship wrestling until sometime in 1993, but he was allowed 
his contract didn't forbid him to go work for a bodybuilding federation. So technically, he is a WBF superstar. This is another one of Vince McMahon's bad ideas from the early 90s. And he appeared on Wrestling Superstars, which got people at WCW upset, but he was just plugging the WBF. And now he's on camera at WrestleMania, which took us all by surprise. But, you know, again, I guess technically he was allowed to do it. Uh, Smart move by by Vince to have him under a WBF contract and use him to be the face of the WB, the the World Bodybuilding Federation, which did not last. And I guess really bad timing based off the uh, steroid scandals and stuff. But it was a smart move. I, it didn't really, even as a kid, it didn't impress me. You know, just like, who is this man? Especially my first time watching. I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. Uh, he's just some guy who's like taking his shirt off and drinking protein shakes. And <laughs> who are you, sir? <laughs> That's how it felt. Get that protein shake on camera, Lex. Yeah, I mean, they were, <laughs> they thought, the WWF thought they were going to make a lot of money off of the supplements. And in addition to the bodybuilding pay-per-views, which even at the time I was like, who's going to buy a bodybuilding pay-per-view? No, I don't know. I, he's <laughs> ambitious. You get one word for Vince, very ambitious. <laughs> That's always been Vince McMahon. I mean, God bless him. We love Vince here. Now we have kind of a throwaway match. This is the kind of match where, all right, let's make sure all these guys get a WrestleMania payday. It's Virgil, Big Boss Man, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and Sergeant Slaughter versus the Nasty Boys, Repo Man, and Mountie. All I can say about this match really is before the match, the Family Feud guy made a bunch of bad jokes. Yeah, that's what he came in. He Oh, the promo. One of my favorite lines in any wrestling promo is is Virgil being like, my nose is broken. Well, who is going to protect you from your nose? Because it's so bad. It's such a <laughs> corny line that's like, what? what? Shut up. <laughs> but it makes me laugh every time. But yeah, he came out, Ray Combs, making all the Family Feud style jokes, uh, getting on the nasties, Repo Man, Mountie. Oh, what a bunch of characters they all are. And yeah, it was it was just a match. Uh, the good guys won, and that was it. Yeah, good guys won. Everyone went home. Kyle, you may not know, may not know this. Virgil was supposed to get. They thought when they first brought Virgil in, they thought he was going to be a superstar. He was raw, but he had a good look. So they put him with Ted DiBiase, and they figured that being with Ted DiBiase, he would learn the business quickly. He would get good at it. He would you know figure out how to wrestle use ring psychology, learn to do a promo, and it just never happened. Sometimes it just happens with some people. I mean, he does have the Virgil Wrestling Superstar banner, so I guess he thought very high of himself, too. But now Virgil is... <laughs> <laughs> now he's famous for different reasons. Yeah, famous for kind of the wrong reasons. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> so next we go from a nothing match to Ric Flair versus Randy Savage. Oh. What'd you think of this match, Kyle? Oh, see, I might, I almost might have to take that back. That might be the match of the night. They're either A and B. Like, it's rare. You can, they can interchange them both, and you wouldn't be wrong between Brett and Piper and Savage Flair. I almost completely forgot about how good that match was. I'm going to say something that is going to make one of our listeners who really loves Randy Savage, uh, Brandon Rice, hello to you there. 
Randy Savage, I thought this was one of Randy Savage's all time best matches. Mm-hmm. And I think Randy Savage is an extremely, was an excellent worker when he wanted to be. But this was not one of Ric Flair's absolute greatest matches, which kind of tells you the gulf between how great Ric Flair was and how great literally everyone else was. I mean, this was, you know, maybe this was probably Savage's, like one of his two or three best matches. This probably isn't one of Ric Flair's 20 or 30 best matches. That's interesting. I did, but I've, I also, I've heard that Ric Flair just never really got, like he was in the WWF, but like, his footing was just never there. Like, like for the year or year and a half that he was there, it was always just kind of weird for people and for himself, which is why he eventually left. Right. Well, yeah, he left because he, I mean, it was clear that his day in the sun was over as a main eventer and he was going to slide down into like, you know, the, the, between the top and the middle of the card and then to the middle of the card. And Rick was like, look, you know, my career, he thought his career was coming to an end. It wouldn't for about another 15 years, but you know, he didn't want to end his career. Really? He, he didn't want to end his career like that. No, I don't blame him. There's definitely a, uh, for WWE, WWF, WWE, when you, once you reach, when you, and you see it going through the years, once you reach a certain age, they start decreasing your value. Even if you can still go, uh, very rarely does that not have like Bobby Lashley right now. I think it's the only person that's like he's 45, but you would think he was 30 with the way they push him. But when like a Jeff Hardy or John Morrison was there, they were like, well, you old now, so you got to go. I, I would not guess that Lashley was, was 45 years old. I would say he looks about 32. Yeah, he's somewhere in his 40s. I mean, you if, if he looks like that at 40, I mean, he could be wrestling till he's 60. So good yeah. for him. <laughs> And the WWF has changed a little bit as far as, you know, now they push older guys like AJ Styles is a younger guy for them. And I think he just turned 40. Yeah, he's another one that's a little who is a little up there. Um, I think who was what was the match? It was it was AJ against someone a couple weeks ago. And I think they're both in there like either early to mid 40s. And I was like when I was younger, like the early to mid 40s match was like Greg Valentine versus Tito Santana. It's like, wow. <laughs> This has changed so much. <laughs> like it's pretty it wild. really has. The whole business has changed, and WWF has changed the way they do things. I think they just want to have more mature people out there on the road. Something weird, Ric Flair had just won the WWF championship like nine or ten weeks ago, and they took it off of him. Like I was shocked. And more than that, I was like, okay, what direction is this promotion going in? You're putting the title back on randy savage who i thought by now his best days not only as a performer but his best days like you know as a main eventer were behind him he'd, he'd been with the wwf since 1985 here we are seven years later and they're putting the belt on him again yeah i mean i i i didn't know you know this is my first time seeing him too but between uh, I think just the storyline standpoint was one of those things he had to win. The storyline they made with the photos and the pictures, and if he lost, they would show the photo. Like, you can't lose when all that's on the line. That's Unless actually, you're like The Miz. <laughs> but yeah, really. But you, you can't lose. So Macho Man, he, he got the win. And he lost the title, I think, sometime in September, like after SummerSlam. So he yeah, lost he it lost again. But... 
again to flair and yeah. by that time it was like okay you know they, they they really looked lost as far as booking the the championship goes and then a month later or two months later flair loses it to brett so we're wwf we're used to having longer championship range now they're, they're just throwing the belt around yeah they're trying to find something that sticks yeah exactly but I, yeah, it was a great I, match though yeah, and I thought the build-up to this match was fantastic. You had Ric Flair mm-hmm. and Kurt Henning showing off old photos, we think, of Ric Flair and Elizabeth back when they were in a relationship. And, I mean, just a, a great brainstorm by the WWF. And then a couple of weeks later, you have Randy Savage on television, and they're asking him about it. He's got this one-word answer, untrue! Yeah. <laughs> Were they like photoshopped or some type of photoshop that Flair put on or something like that? I, the, I think I've seen some. What was that? The resolution. The storyline resolution was that Flair had the pictures photoshopped. They were fake pictures. In mm. real life, they just took two sets of pictures. Yeah, of course. They gotta. <laughs> why not? Just hide from people and make sure you're, no one sees Macho and Flair at the same time. But yeah. I might I might have to take that back about Brett and Pipe. This might be the best one only because this also sets the course, at least for Bobby Heenan, for the rest of the night. Like his demeanor has changed. It shifted. He's miserable on commentary. Like everything about him, like everything about him from before is different. They're so angry. Like it it it's great. You're you're right, Bobby's his demeanor completely changed. I I noticed that. I didn't have it on my notes. Um, I mean, Liz appears in the middle of the match, and the heat is off the charts. They're giving the people what they want, especially when Flair goes to kiss Elizabeth and Mm -hmm. she falls off on him. I mean, perfectly written. Wonderful, (laughs) wonderful match. And happy that this happened because this almost didn't happen. It was going to be. Flair versus Hogan, which I don't think would have delivered in the same way. I know this WrestleMania gets a bad rap for not having Flair versus Hogan, but I don't think you would get, it would not be as good match-wise if you did Flair and Hogan. Well, I'll tell you what, I I do, later in the show, and I'm glad you brought that up, I do want to talk about why they didn't do Flair versus Hogan, but I'll get to that. And one thing, one other thing, one negative about this match is Randy Savage. He wasn't that big a guy to begin with, and now he's got to get off the gas. And he's out there wearing a, a full body suit. He's like the fat kid wearing a t shirt in the pool. See, I I just thought that's how he dressed. <laughs> that's really it. That's that's just it. I had no idea. I thought he just dressed like an aunt in church, a black aunt. <laughs> but. Okay, <laughs> learning no, so much. Well. This steroid scandal really messed everything up. Oh, it did. It, I mean, it really uh, took a bite out of the WWF the year. Their attendance went way down. The buy rate for the show was down 20 to 25% from the previous WrestleMania, and that one was a disappointment. So, you mm. know, I, I think WWF at this point, was kind of an 80s fad that was losing a little bit of its luster and the scandals don't help especially when the scandals involve you know sex and underage boys yes those are those were some scandals as well. all right uh, let Ugh. me see it so they they go to an intermission and that was in and here's what i'm wondering we've got four matches left 
basically the fans care about there are three or four big matches on this show there was flair versus savage undertaker and jake and brett versus piper so four big matches we're at intermission and three of them are over i don't think they uh what's the word i'm looking for uh laid out this card the best way they could no it gets a little sporadic after the after that match uh, is like Tatanka next after like all the video promos? Tatanka uh, is on the backstage, yeah. Against Rick Martel. Rick Martel has been around for a while now and he's getting stale, but I always liked him as a heel. Kyle, I don't know if you ever heard this story before. I heard it from a, a good source that Vince McMahon uh, went to go see Dances with Wolves, and that's where he came up with the Tatanka character. And he thought it was going to be huge, like not maybe not Hogan main eventing WrestleMania huge, but he thought it was going to be big. I believe it. <laughs> like from everything I've I've learned about Vince McMahon, I believe that. I, but Tatanka, they did it to themselves later on. He was undefeated for like a year and a half, and they just never put a title on him. He was popular, and then he loses to Ludwig Borga with one finger, and of course he's never going to be the same after that. Like. That, I liked Tatanka. I thought he was cool. Uh, Ludwig Borga is another guy that Vince McMahon thought uh, was going to be a, a huge success. And yeah, that, you know, that's a good way to kill Tatanka by having him lose in that manner. But you know, Ludwig Borga was a guy who got pushed heavy on TV in like 93, 94, and barely anyone remembers him. Yeah, and he was a, he's in the infamous green card series for the Hasbros too, which meant a big deal. What's a the green card figures? The, the, the last Hasbro, the action figures that they used to make, uh-huh. they had these green cards. They were on the, you know, they had they come in cases, how they came in the cards, and the cards were like blue or red or orange or something like that. They had a green card series that was Ludwig Borga, the Smoking Guns, Adam Bomb, One Two Three Kid, Yokozuna, Heel Crush, and I think that's it. And they were so rare to find that they were like, if you found them, they were worth lots and lots of money. So you couldn't even find them in like Toys R Us's. You had to travel to like random ass like figure stores and they would have the green cards as they were called. That is that is so I, I, I know very little about this, but I think that is such a great gimmick that if they if you want it bad enough, you got to go looking for it. And that kind of adds to the mania. Yeah, oh, it did. I, I found out about it. Bless my parents for actually like trying to go on the hunt and 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 be in like doing it with me. The one two three kid was at the time when I was growing up a hundred and fifty dollars for the one two three kid figure. That's which was like insane. That's like three three hundred and fifty dollars today. That is insane. Yes, yeah, so, which I ended up getting, and then some kid broke it, and I was I was so no angry. Way. He broke it. Yep, he broke my one, two, three kid. Uh, Sean Waltman, if you're listening, and I know sometimes you are. Wow, you're a valuable commodity, dude. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll I'll tell you something about Sean when we when we get off the air, Kyle. <laughs> anyway, All right. let me see. Next match: Money Inc. versus the Natural Disasters. This was not a good match. I mean, the Natural Disasters were like the worst babyface tag team ever. <laughs> I don't know who came up with this idea that people were going to get behind these guys, but they didn't. They were just terrible in the ring and not even uh, an outstanding wrestler like Ted DiBiase and a very good wrestler like Mike Rotundo. 
on WrestleMania Day could save this. Man, you just let an earthquake and typhoon have it today. Uh, <laughs> it was it, it's 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 longer than I expected. When I rewatched it, I was like, wow, this match is much longer than I thought. And this team seemed to like feud for eternity uh, when I was watching in the summer. Because I remember they, I think the natural disasters win the titles once eventually. And this that feud is to me is infamous because it's the first time I saw somebody get put in the million dollar dream or sleeper hold. And the hand actually goes down to three when the ref picks up the hand to drop it. It's like one, two, because usually by the third one, the person starts shaking and kicks out. And Earthquake is the first person I saw to go down to the actual third hand. And I could not believe it. I didn't think that was possible. But Earthquake proved me wrong. Well, you know, it's pro wrestling. They, they demonstrate that the big moves only work against the guys who can't fight. If it's about big match, your big move isn't going to work unless it's Hulk Hogan's leg drop. Exactly. <laughs> but no, this feud, this match, this feud, it was there. <laughs> I tell you, I don't have the this taste for the natural disasters as much as you do, but they were just there. Especially my first year of watching, they they were just kind of there. They weren't like my favorite team or anything. No, I, I wasn't a big fan, but I was a big fan of Ted DiBiase. And little did I know watching this that we were seeing the very end of his career. His mm. WWF career would be over by the end of 1992. He did some indies in Japan in 1993, and he was done as a wrestler by the end of that year. And kind of it's sad wild. because he's an all-time great. Yeah, that was a team. On the flip, Money Inc. was a team I was very invested in. Because I hated them because they would always do the, what we saw at the ending of WrestleMania 8. They would do the count out and they would walk out with the titles and they would retain. And I'm just like, oh, you guys are the worst. I just <laughs> remember being so angry all the time. And then there was I, there was a superstars or something where I think Harold Hebner was like, if they walk out the match, not only do they lose, they lose their titles. And I was like, this is the most genius thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then they eventually come back in and win. But yeah. All right, next up, we have Owen Hart versus Skinner. I I wasn't sure what they were doing here. I know they were thinking about how they could push Owen Hart. I know Brett was kind of in Owen's corner. And Mm. they have him against Skinner, and the match went, what, like uh, just over a minute. It took them longer to get to the ring than it did to finish the match. Yeah, you can put that whole match on Instagram, and it'll be (laughs) done. That's how quick that match was. But Owen... Was Owen? That's it. There's really nothing to say about the match. Owen won. Skinner, Skinner, and got to hear the Heavenly Bodies music. That was cool. (laughs) There you go. All right, now Hulk versus Sid. Coming into the match, they are well on TV. They are teasing that this could be Hulk Hogan's last match. Mm -hmm. In real life, we know Hulk Hogan is going away for a little while. Um, I mean, they had it on Monday Night Raw. The Monday before the event, Vince McMahon flat out asked Hulk Hogan, you know, is this going to be it for you? And Hogan says he's not sure. So they're definitely dropping hints that, hey, if you want to see Hulk Hogan one more time, buy this pay-per-view. Yeah, they had the they had a lot of video again, a lot of just random promos. They had Brutus Beefcake, which I think Gene Oakland was like the superstar, like one of the most like prolific superstars in the WWE ever. And I was like, nah, no, calm it down. Like, I don't think anybody thinks that way. Uh, sorry, Brutus. And they had the Sid, no. uh, the, 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 the fat, bald-headed little oaf, 
line, which always used to kill me. Uh, and the and like you said, they showed the Hogan interview. All this leading up to this match, which was a Hogan match. It was a Hogan match. That's a good mm-hmm. way to put it because they did absolutely nothing out there. I mean, it, nothing. And the crowd was still going crazy for it. Which, I mean, just tells you a lot about Hogan. He is a generational talent when it comes to, to, to getting over. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big Hogan person now, but I can't deny how popular he was, how influential he was, how so many fans and people were, were into him. Although during that match, I do see, like, when, uh, it's in the front row. When he gets, like, powerbombed or something, I said two guys, like, high-five each other because they think that's the end. And then Hogan kicks out, and they're, like, still disappointed afterwards, which I never <laughs> noticed until now. I was like, oh, wow, like, right in the front row, these guys do not want him to win. I did not notice that, but I did notice the crowd just popping like crazy for Hogan. And I also noticed that Hogan, I, I didn't see this in 1992, but I noticed when I did the rewatch, Hogan looks so old here. I looked up his age. He's 39. He's not far from 40. But man, he would pass for forty nine going on fifty. I mean, just I, I don't know what it was. He's just one of those guys that always looked old. He does not have those Bobby Lashley jeans. <laughs> Bobby <laughs> Lashley is forty five. Looks twenty five. Bobby Lashley looks way better than I do. Way better than I ever did. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever looked like Bobby. Even at my best, I will <laughs> never look like with Bobby Lashley ever. So they, not gonna they happen. T- they screw up the finish. The finish was supposed to be Papa Shango Shango runs mm-hmm. in the ring, attacks Hogan, and they you know they had to improvise from there when either he screwed up or more likely he didn't get his cue, and they improvised the finish, and that just kind of tells you everything you need to know about this match from an in-ring standpoint. Yeah, that's what happened. He got uh he lost Papa Shango claims that no one gave him his cue. And then he came running down like he wasn't in the area to do it. I don't know. It's such a weird story. And then he comes running down. Sid actually ends up kicking out, which I guess helps Sid. He kicked out of the leg drop. He had no choice. I think Harvey Whippleman was trying his best to improvise and get involved so the ref would get distracted. But I just it didn't work that way. Sid had to kick out. Uh, and then we eventually get to the ending where Pop Mashango does come out and they're beating up. Uh, Hulk Hogan for a bit until we hear that music, that familiar Ultimate Warrior music. Yeah, Ultimate Warrior returns uh, after literally getting fired in the dressing room after SummerSlam 1991. He got a huge pop coming out, and you said he was one of two wrestlers that you knew about as a kid, you know, watching this live. I mean, what was your reaction? You know, well, like you said, you see this guy flying to the ring in this costume with all these colors i loved it i absolutely loved it it is why i'm a fan today again not somebody who uh, aged as well in the in later years but at the time i thought this was the coolest thing in the world seeing this guy the warrior come out help hulk hogan take out papa shango take out sid and then the two of them celebrating together which seemed like an eternity but <laughs> I have yeah. no I, I have no backstory to this. So I just have this man comes and saves this man, the two people I know. And it clicked. It just clicked from there. So I loved it. Even even when I watched it back, I'm like, 
smiling about it. Like, it'll always have a, a good memory for me. Oh, that that's good. I mean, I, you know, when I first became a wrestling fan, you're, 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 I've told the story before, you're going to laugh. The guy who got me hooked was Chief J. Strongbow. <laughs> so that All was right. a lot <laughs> than you are. So. Hey, nothing wrong with Chief J. Strongbow. <laughs> well, unless you have eyes, but anyway. <laughs> I don't uh, wonder what movie Vince McMahon saw then. I don't know. Or Vince Sr. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I heard someone afterwards say that this was the worst, the, the worst main event in pay-per-view history up until this point. There were like, I don't know, maybe 35, 40 pay-per-views. And I'm like, no, did you not see Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant? And mm. this is like a week after the WrestleMania. And he's like, yeah, it was worse than, than Hogan and Andre because it's Hogan and Andre. Like, you know, it, it has that you know, that historical impact, whereas Hogan versus Sid, eh, and I'm like, you know what? I can kind of see that. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you, the historical impact definitely adds to it. Same thing with Hogan Warrior. I remember my brother and I tried rewatching that years ago, and he fell asleep because the match was so long of oh, them man. not doing anything when they're just hugging each other pretty much. But I guess, yeah, up until I don't know what beats it afterwards, but it was not a good main event. It was it was a Hogan match, and Sid, God bless him, his his WrestleMania main events were not. I don't think Sid was the long main event kind of guy. Let's put it that way. No, they Sid. You know, he had that look. He had a certain charisma about him, but he kept getting push after push. Where you know you're like, okay, how many times has, has this guy gotten a big push? And how many times has he really gotten over the way a company needs him to be over? But it kept happening. Yeah, no, they just love that look of his. Uh, and and I, the one, the most I've ever liked Sid was when he was in ECW. He just kept powerbombing people and leaving. I was like, okay, cool. Stick <laughs> to his strengths. That's awesome. Although you, that, if, he, if you want to put mean, him in main events, oh, I'm okay. No, thank you. Now, I see him as not a WrestleMania main event kind of guy. Maybe a SummerSlam, maybe an in-your-house main event kind of guy, but not a mm. WrestleMania. In Survivor Series 96, he did pretty well. Fans were all all about him. I'll Beat tell Shawn you Michaels. What, when he When I heard he was coming back in 1996, I went out of my way to watch Raw to see what happens. Because, again, he had that weird kind of charisma, but... Before I forget to ask you this, Kyle, because you, you were younger and I uh, very young, and I want to get your thoughts on this. What were your thoughts on Papa Shango? Like the whole gimmick, the whole thing. He was just weird. <laughs> like I didn't like I was just kind of like like a weird man with paint. That's all I saw him as. He like he didn't scare me or anything. Uh, he, I guess the voodoo stuff went over my head. He's okay. just kind of like a weird kind of villain, man. Because yeah, also around those times was like Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers and shows like that. So he just kind of seemed like a a baddie, kind of. Like I didn't I didn't think that much of him. I, he didn't win much either. Yeah, I mean they they yeah they they gave up on his push kind of early, but they they put a lot in him at at first. I mean, and I'm not always right, but I was right about this, like. They had Doink the Clown. They debuted him, like, I want to say a year earlier, maybe not even. And Mm. I was like, oh, man, you're really pushing it with these, like, over-the-top 
crazy gimmicks. But at the end of the day, you're like, okay, you know, this guy, maybe he really is a good wrestler and he wants to be a weirdo dressed like a clown. But now <laughs> you've got guy, this Papa Shango, who can make blood fall out of the sky and whatever else. And it's just like, I think that the fans are going to throw this one back at the WWF and they did. Yeah, I mean, I actually... I missed the, uh, maybe they just didn't show up by me or I was just out doing kid stuff, but I missed the infamous throw up episode with the ultimate warrior and it was watching it back later. It was not good. <laughs> it was pretty cheesy, but it was, it was the nineties. It was the nineties WWF. So, okay. There's nothing you can really do about it now, but yeah, no. he just, he didn't really, it, I didn't have like strong feelings towards Papa Shango, like as a heel or as a character, I was just kind of like, okay, he's here. He lost, like I yeah. said, he lost. Like Bro Hart beat him, Saturday Night's main event, Warrior would beat him. But it just didn't really help when you lose all the time. No, that's a good point. Like I said, I think they they gave up on it early, which they they probably should have toned down the gimmick to begin with. Here's why I think WrestleMania Eight was a very historic show. Hear me out here, people. Mm. It was the end of the Hulk Hogan era. It it started January 23rd, 1984, when he beat the Iron Sheik at Madison Square Garden for the WWF title. And April 5th, 1992 is the day that era ended. And I really believe like Hogan went home. He was supposed to come back for SummerSlam. He didn't really come back until, no, he didn't call him, come back at all until the buildup for the next WrestleMania and his return wasn't that effective. And five years later, the WWF would come out of a slump during WrestleMania 13, which we plan on talking about next week. And I mean, the WWF just went through a really bad five-year slump starting today. Well, yeah, I would say that it is the end of the Hulkamania era. And maybe it's uh, just me being... I always say that you fall in love with your first year and no matter what people like to call it nostalgia goggles now or whatever, like you'll always love your first year of wrestling. And I still love 92. I love almost everything about it. Like I love the uh, Bret Hart, the British Bulldog, Shawn Michaels, uh, Saturday, that Saturday night's main event with the ultimate maniacs. And even that storyline, like it's all, it's all very close and dear to my heart that first year. Uh, but I, you can't deny that they they had some problems with growth. They tried a lot of things. I think, um, in an entering standpoint, like 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 I said, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker, Bret Hart, uh, Owen Hart, eventually, uh, and other wrestlers carried them well there. But everything else, it just kind of fell apart, uh, which was unfortunate. But they had to they had to change. They had to change from a uh, Razor Ramon's another one. Uh, they had to change from the big muscle guys to the quote new generation, which they officially dubbed in '94. I think '92 to '93 was just a like oh, whatever era. They didn't have a name for it. <laughs> like we're figuring it out, era. <laughs> but, but. Yeah, I, I mean they had some good stuff in 1992. I mean I'm a big fan of Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels. They they still had Ric Flair. Uh, mm -hmm. Very beginning of 93, I saw one of the best matches I've ever seen live at the Boston Garden. Uh, it was a 60-man Ironman match between Bret Hart and Ric Flair. Mm -hmm. And Ironman matches can be a little bit iffy, but this was one of the greatest matches ever. I mean, if, if it's not five-star, Kyle, you, that's kind of your, your nickname, your handle on Twitter, keep it five-star. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, if that wasn't a five star match, it was awfully close, like four and a half, four and three quarter. I mean, I think uh, not even without even seeing it, I think a Brett Flair Iron Man match is a five star match. <laughs> I can I can already <laughs> tell you, Mister Perfect came back in, in ring action. That was another thing they also hold to my heart. But uh, and what else? Happened? A lot happens, guys. A lot. <laughs> a lot happens in those in those few years as they're trying to uh figure it out. Diesel happens, which some people didn't like, but I was nine, so it was the coolest thing ever. No, I'm the same way. I mean, when a lot of the stuff when I first started, I remember maybe 15 years ago, I got a DVD from it was back when it was it wasn't even WWE 24/7. It wasn't WWE Network. It was whatever came before that on cable. So we're going way back, and this guy managed to get a copy of a Madison Square Garden show from 1976 and he hadn't watched it yet but he gave me a copy of the dvd and i'm mm-hmm. like as soon as i get home i'm gonna watch this and by the way when you watch it get ready for nothing to happen because nothing is and he calls me like two or three days later and he's like you're right nothing happens everything moves at a glacial speed but i loved it it was it was yeah. nostalgia goggles for me it's your first year you love your first year even if your first year was Deuce and Domino, you're gonna have very strong feelings about <laughs> Deuce and Domino. It's just kind of how it is. That's how. That's my theory. I, that's funny. I just watched some Deuce and Domino show stuff from like two, about two weeks ago. But anyway, yeah. we got a good theme some, song. And, and the, the the trick was cute. That's about it. Oh, Cherry. Yeah, I, I, I like I liked the idea. It was maybe in the wrong time, but I don't know what you're doing with greasers in 2007. But uh, hey, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. I do want to say one more thing about this WrestleMania on the network. It's very weird that they have they try to dub over. I don't know which version of a tape that they got. I think they have an old uh, a tape where they were cutting out certain WWFs and and trying to dub over music. Because when Ric Flair comes out, they try and dub over his WWF music with the one that we all know, and the dubbing doesn't work out. You can hear the two songs clashing. And it's very odd. It's just like, you just sort of kept it. Like, I don't understand why they did that. I, I don't understand either, because I, I think Ric Flair's WWF music was public domain. Kyle, we've got about 10 minutes left. We actually took some questions from our Facebook page. And let me see, I put that up like, I put it up like a half an hour before we started recording. And so I haven't had the chance to think about these either. But John English asks, What's the real reason Hogan versus Flair didn't happen? And I'll Mm. tell you what I heard back in 1991. Sid was in, he was with WCW and they were going to, they did whatever they could to keep him. They were going to give him a big contract and a run with the WCW title, which was going to start at the 1991 Great American Bash. He was Mm -hmm. going to be Ric Flair on that night. Well, Sid wound up going to the WWF anyway, and he was promised the main event at WrestleMania 8. This is something I heard in, you know, I want to say fall 1991. That, that, and this week, he got the promise before Flair jumped to the WWF, and Vince understood that he had that option to have mm. Flair versus Hogan. But that's what, that's what I heard way back in the day, over 30 years ago, why they didn't go with Hogan and Flair, but Kyle, 
I think they should have gone with Hogan and Flair anyway and made it up to Sid some other way because, and, and I get it as a younger person, you know, you're not going to understand this or you just weren't part of that culture. But Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair was a dream match. No, let me let me take that back. It was the dream match. It was the match every wrestling fan had wanted to see since the birth of Hulkamania in 1984. And instead, they just made it a house show event. And I thought the storyline for Savage versus Flair was great. But still, the dream match was Flair versus Hogan. Yeah, everything I've heard about that, I I get that 100%. You know, coming in with the real world championship. And it was it should have been Hogan and Flair. I also heard that neither like the matches were not great and that like I maybe neither person wanted to lose. I don't know how true those were uh, or other reasons why this match. The, this is the first I'm hearing about the Sid thing. Like I had no idea that they were promising Sid a main event and then they get Ric Flair. It's like, oh, God, it's almost it seems kind of familiar to AEW right now. Where they're like, all right, we're not hiring any more people. Oh, my God, Cesaro, we got to get him. We also gotta get Jeff Hardy. <laughs> oh, we also gotta. Oh crap! We still have Serpentico here. Like <laughs> too many people on the roster. You're giving promises to, but not that AEW's doing that. I don't want any AEW hardcores coming at me. But uh, yeah, I didn't. I've never heard that about Sid. So that's really interesting to do that match. I mean, in hindsight, it all would be perfect. But I guess maybe that's why they did the live event house show matches, and it just didn't click. And what's better to do the match anyway and have it not deliver or to just not do the match and have a match that did deliver at least one of the main events did both because for me the warrior came back that's a big surprise but for me i saw the warrior for the first time ever well and uh, you know if he if he's one of the two guys you ever heard of that had to be cool two quick things though i did see two uh hogan versus flair matches at at boston garden live and there were two matches at for Madison Square Garden that they did, which are available. I, I, I'm not sure if they're available on Peacock or if you just got to search YouTube for them. I thought all four matches were really good. I mean, not all-time hmm. classic, but good matches. Yeah, I mean, and I genuinely don't know. It could be the Sid thing. It could be the Sid thing. It could have been the no one wants to put the other person over. I have no idea why. And I don't think you'll ever get a straight answer from any any of them involved. No. And so. that's not the way it goes in wrestling. We do know that. <laughs> no. I mean, it, it was funny because Vince McMahon was famous for years when he was talking to a guy about, you know, maybe bringing them in from the NWA or bringing them in for AWA world class, whatever. You know, the guy would say, OK, Vince, you know, what are what is the WWF going to do with me? And Vince wouldn't answer. He would be like, you know, you know well, you just sign the contract and. We'll see, you know, we'll figure something out for you. And, you know, I mean, Ted DiBiase had a famous story about how Vince McMahon told him that. And Ted was ready to go to the NWA. And Pat Patterson calls Ted and says, Ted, I can't tell you what the gimmick is, but I can tell you that if you come to the WWF, you're going to get the gimmick that Vince would have given himself. You need to sign here. And Ted did. And it was the uh, it was going to the NWA would have been the biggest mistake of his life. Yeah, it really worked out for him. It really, really did. Um, I mean, I can't imagine poor Dusty Rhodes doing that and then getting polka dots. He's like, just trust me on this one. It's going to change <laughs> your life. And he gets the friggin' polka dots and sapphire, bless her heart. <laughs> He's stuck with that. So I guess not everyone gets the gimmick that they that, that Vince would give himself. But 
<laughs> that 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 is a cool story about DiBiase because I saw they're actually making an action figure line of like old school DiBiase and it's like Cowboy Ted, and I was like, I didn't even know this person existed. Like, I only know the Million Dollar Man. Cowboy Ted only existed in Japan when he was Stan Hansen's tag team partner in Japan. Uh, when he was before he was the Million Dollar Man, he really didn't have a gimmick. When he was when he was a babyface, he was just a, a white bread babyface. When he was a heel, he was a a really mean guy with a beard. But you know that was the first time he ever really got a gimmick, and it was a great one. Hey, if it works out, it works out. And the words Ted DiBiase and babyface together are just two things that do not stick in my head. It seems so wrong for some reason. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw him, he was in the WWF in 1979, and he was just, you know, he was a total charismaless guy, if that's a word. If you if you type in the search engine for a photo, Ted DiBiase, 1979, I, I think you're going to get a laugh out of it. I'll have to do that. I'll have to see what he was like. Kyle, we're going to we're going to sign off. Can you tell us what you're up to where we can see Kyle Lewis perform comedy? Uh, yeah, my next show, getting back at it, it will be a uh, black cat uh, on the Lower East Side. I think they just call it Black Cat LES for uh, Good For You Comedy on March 9th. I want to say around 8 p.m., but you can check out Good For You Comedy and you can check out my socials at Keep It Five Star F-I-V-E on all the social media platforms. Uh, for more, if you want to see me, if you want to hear some jokes, if you want to talk about wrestling or if you have. If you also love 1992, <laughs> by all <laughs> means, come come hang out. Uh, it should be a good time. It's going to be a much younger crowd than the one Kyle experienced here on Stick to Wrestling. But Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. I had a really, really good time talking with you. No, I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. No, you're very welcome. And I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. We're scheduled to talk about WrestleMania 13. Today we talked about the end. Next week we're going to talk about the beginning. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this platform. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does producing this show. And this has been our production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 